So much of what we learn in life, someone's taught us, right? We've been taught by other people. Um, Back in grade four, I remember I was taught something by my teacher, Mrs. Gerard, something I don't think they teach kids anymore. Any guesses what that might be? Cursive writing. Got a picture of, you know what cursive is? They used to just call it writing, and the other was printing, but now it's kind of fallen by the wayside, and Mrs. Gerard would take once or twice a week, maybe half hour or so, and she would teach us how to write in cursive, and this is how she did it. She got something else that we don't have anymore, an overhead projector, (laughs) and... She got, you know, a sheet that had three lines, you know, the dotted line in the middle so you know how to do a lowercase or an uppercase, and she would just start drawing out the letters, and she wouldn't just expect us to sit and watch her do it. She, we all had books, and we were expected to copy what she was doing, looking and trying to do it ourselves, and we got through the alphabet, and then we got to start connecting these letters together, and, you know, some letters don't connect the same way as others, and so we started putting three-letter words together. Every... For that whole year, we did that a little bit, a little bit at a time. And even though I admittedly don't use cursive all that often anymore, I'm very thankful that uh, Mrs. Gerard taught us that. Whether it's cursive or whether it's even things like the faith, people teach us these things. We are influenced by others. A few months ago, I was reading in a magazine called Faith Today. It's a Canadian Christian magazine um, put out by the Fellowship, Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and it had a stat in there that really was sobering. And I didn't think I was ever going to talk about it in this message, so the picture's not that great, but I have this picture that basically says one-third of all Canadian churches are going to close in the next five to ten years. One in three... And you may be wondering, well, we've seen this trend, this trajectory, and you might think, well, why, why are Canadians not as religious or going to church like they used to? And I'm sure it's a very complex answer, but to put it really simply, it's because over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, um, there have been millions upon millions of people that grew up in church, Sunday school, their parents went to church, and they have walked away. They've walked away from the church. They've, some of them have walked away from believing in Jesus or God altogether. And I don't want to be pessimistic, but stats like that tell me that, hmm, maybe the church in Canada, and I'm going to be, say, the broad church, the, the big C church in Canada, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm going to include myself in this, but maybe the church in Canada for the last number of decades has not done a great job at training our next generation up in the faith so that they have a a living relationship with Jesus and grow and mature so that they can carry it on and pass it on to the next generation. I want to talk to us today about how each and every one of you have this ability to influence people, to influence others um, in their walks with God. And the Bible word for that is something we call discipling. Discipleship. What is a disciple? Well, a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to throw up a definition there. I'm sure there's more nuanced ones. But someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And therefore, a disciple maker or disciple making would be entering into relationships to intentionally help people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and join in the mission of Jesus 
Last week, if you were following along, we were in Acts chapter 19, and the Apostle Paul was got involved in this big riot that happened in Ephesus. Everyone got angry at the church that was growing, and it got a little crazy for a while. And finally, people calmed down. And we're going to be jumping into verse 20, or chapter 20 of verse 1. I want to read a couple of verses for you that says this, When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. And then he said goodbye and left them for Macedonia. And while there, he, there's that word again, he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. Then he traveled down to Greece where he stayed for three months. I want to look specifically today, and if, if we've already admitted that, hmm, maybe, maybe the church, we haven't always done the best job at passing the faith on to the next generation, I want to look today, how did Paul make disciples? How did Jesus make disciples? And just from even reading that two or three verses where I see he encouraged people, it says he encouraged them twice, if we want to be disciple makers following the ways of Paul, the ways of Jesus, I think one element right there is to be an encourager. Encouraging is like, encouragement is like fertilizer to growing corn, right? It's like, it's like water to a, a thirsty plant. Encouragement does a whole lot. And I can only imagine that after this big riot that happened in Ephesus, no doubt some of those new believers, they would have been a little shook up, you know, of seeing what had happened. And Paul knew he was going to be leaving them very shortly. And I no doubt I'm wondering, like, would Paul have had in the back of his mind thinking, man, I wonder how they're going to do without me. Are they going to continue on in the faith? Are they going to um, not be able to take the social pressure and turn back and go back to their pagan ways? Or are they going to turn inward on themselves and kind of detach themselves from the culture they are trying to influence? What would happen to them? And so Paul felt that one of the most important things to do was before he left, he was going to encourage them. Encouragement, one definition is basically to inspire with courage or hope. And I heard one writer, they wrote it this way. They're like, when we encourage people, we're like imparting courage to them. I've never thought of it that way, imparting courage. Like when we encourage someone, we're imparting courage for them to keep going when the going gets tough, to press on when there's an obstacle in the way, to keep seeing and believing in hope when it seems like all is doom and gloom. Encouragement. It does a lot. In the Bible, there's a number of places where encouragement's mentioned. Um, Hebrews 10 says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Another place in the Old Testament, Moses is about to pass the baton of leadership off to Joshua and God is giving him some last direction and this is what he says in Deuteronomy 1. It says, God says, instead your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will lead the people into the land. So encourage him. Encourage him for he will lead Israel as they take possession of it. The last, one of the last things God tells Moses to do, you need to encourage that guy because he's going to need it. One more scripture, Acts, Acts chapter 4, just in passing it, it says these words. There was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, and in brackets it says, which means 
son of encouragement. Do you ever think, what would it take for a person to get that as their nickname? Son of encouragement. Like, I don't know about you, but I would love to have those types of people in my life. You know, the people that when you spend time with them, you always feel better than when you came. Encouragement is powerful. I'm assuming here many of you know of the, I don't know what to call it. Any English majors here? Like, there's Lord of the Rings. You all know what a Lord of the Rings are? That trilogy, that epic written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And then there's another one called The Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. And probably some of you know this, but C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were friends. And I think we have just a picture. C.S. Lewis is on the left and Tolkien's on the right. And they met at a faculty meeting at Oxford. They were both uh, on, s- on staff for their lecturers. And apparently, the relationship started over this mutual love for Norse mythology. And you know, if, if, you, read the, if you read Lord of the Rings, you understand quickly how much Tolkien loves uh, mythology, especially Norse stuff. And apparently, Tolkien at that time, he was a, a strong, committed Christian, but C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And it was actually in part due to their relationship that over time and the conversations they had that um, C.S. Lewis finally made a commitment and decided he was going to follow Jesus and he became a Christian. What I didn't realize until this week is that C.S. Lewis also influenced Tolkien to keep writing and to publish the Lord of the Rings. And I want to just read a little quote that Tolkien said a few years after C.S. Lewis had died, and he said, the unpayable debt that I owe to Lewis was not influence, as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. I don't know about you, but I didn't know that. That C.S. Lewis, just from encouraging and keep encouraging, had an effect that we might not have Lord of the Rings today if it wasn't for that. You know what the beautiful thing about encouragement is? Is you don't need a special talent. You don't need an education. You don't need a high IQ to be an encourager. I'm wondering today, maybe there's someone in your life that needs some encouragement. Maybe they just need someone to listen to what's going on in their life. Maybe they need someone when when their perspective is just gloom. Maybe they need someone in their life to, to give a more rounded perspective and say, I see actually hope as well. Is there someone that we can be encouraging today? Encouraging is integral to helping people grow in their faith. Paul thought so. Let's keep reading in Acts, just a couple more verses in chapter 20. It says this. Several men were traveling with him. They were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, um, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, Tychicus, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Man, that was a mouthful. <laughs> no idea if that's how you say it, but. <laughs> um, 
They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. After the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia, and five days later joined them in Troas, where we stayed a week. So what, what is going on there other than a long list of hard-to-pronounce names? Paul is heading onward to Jerusalem. And in other places, we know that he's taking a collection with him. He's going to the churches as he passes through. He's taking a financial collection to take to the church in Judea because the church in Judea has fallen on some hard times. There's a famine going on, and Paul wants to bless them in that way. But he doesn't just take their money. He actually wants to take representatives of those churches, some of them, to come and deliver the money in person. And so there's a list of seven guys here. Seven guys' names that probably none of us would ever name our sons, but nevertheless, there's these seven guys. And I want to point something out in that list of names. Something really stood out to me. All the cities and towns that are mentioned in that list were towns and cities that Paul, years before, went and preached the gospel and started the first churches. I have a map up here. Things like Berea, Thessalonica, uh, Derby, Asia, where Ephesus is in that province. And I got to thinking, at one time, all these list of names, those seven guys, they probably weren't Christians. And they were all directly influenced by Paul going out and starting these churches And now, we fast forward to Acts chapter 20, and those people that maybe weren't Christians years ago not only are Christians and believers in Jesus, but now they are leaders and representatives in their churches. That, friends, that's that's disciple-making right there. And um, a couple of those names we see elsewhere. Aristarchus, he was in that mob Last week, he was dragged into the amphitheater, and then he eventually went with Paul to Rome. Uh, Tychicus, he's mentioned many times in the New Testament. He was Paul's letter carrier, so he would deliver some of those letters we have, and when he got there, he would probably be the one that would be reading them to the people as Paul's representative. He was described as a beloved brother of Paul, and then, of course, the most famous one we recognize, Timothy. He went with Paul on a second missionary journey, one of Paul's, we would say, his inner circle And these were all guys that would have been probably much younger than Paul, and they looked up to Paul as this spiritual mentor. My question is, after seeing this list of names, is like, Paul, how did you disciple people? Because I could use some help, right? I don't know about you, but I could use some help. How do you disciple people? You see, as an apostle, Paul was going and starting church after church after church, and except for a couple exceptions, He was probably in a town or a city no more than six months. And so he goes in and he preaches the gospel and he starts a church and he knows within six months he's probably going to be moving on. So what is he going to do? He needs a a system, a way of growing these new believers so that they can stand on their own two feet when he goes because they're not going to be able to go to him for the next 25 years asking him for advice. So what does he do? Obviously, many people have asked this question. How did Paul do it? How did Jesus do it? And someone, I don't know who, they came up with this acronym of four steps of what we see Jesus and even Paul and others and how they disciple. And it's this, it's this acronym called MAL. Model, 
assist, watch, and leave. Model assist, watch, and leave. And I'll, I bet that many of you in teaching your kids or things have done this without even realizing it. Let's start at number one, model. Let's take the bicycle example. You know, any kid that's ever wanted to ride a bike, they probably saw someone else riding a bike before them, right? That's when they decided, hey, I want to do that. And it's the same thing with growing in faith, that when Paul was in these places, he modeled for them what it meant and what it looked like to be a believer in Jesus. And that meant teaching, of course, but that also meant just living life and showing them how he lived it. You know, it's, it's kind of like the 4-H motto. You learn by doing, right? That's a part of discipling, and that is the modeling. And Paul actually says these words in 1 Corinthians. He says, for even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father, for I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. And this is the verse I want you to, to look at. So I urge you to imitate me. I'm modeling for you. And maybe, on, let's be honest, many of us here, would we have the confidence to say, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, just do what I'm doing? Would we be like, ugh, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I think the key of modeling is it's not about being perfect and having everything right. Because, I mean, is there anyone here that's perfect, like never sins? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. But the key of modeling is that, say, even when you do fall short, you are modeling what it looks like to say you're sorry, to ask for forgiveness, to make restitution. That, to me, is modeling Christian maturity. What does modeling look like? It means that, it means that if, if there are certain things of being a believer, certain skills to have, that we actually show them. So we think prayer is important, right? Talking with God. Well, does that not mean that we have to model and show them, this is, this is how I pray, watch me pray. And this isn't maybe the only way, but this is how I do it. Or if we believe that studying the Bible is important, self-study, um, do we get taught by someone just saying, this is how I do it, watch me, model, number one. Now we get to the second stage, assist. If a kid wants to ride a bike, and they've never been on a bike before, you're probably gonna have to help them and hold them. Maybe they're not used to balancing on a bike, so you get them on the bike and maybe you're holding them, keeping it from flipping over side to side, and maybe you're giving them a little push and holding them straight, and so they're getting used to the, you know, just steering with the handlebars, or maybe assisting means putting on some training wheels, but you are there helping them get started. And that's how it is with, in the faith is, we have to let people get dirty, right? Let people get messy. Let people try, try it out on their own. And they're not, the first time when you do anything, what? It's never very good. But you've got to start somewhere. That's what it's like. And Paul would have, no doubt in those six months, he would have been spending a lot of time modeling what it meant to be a believer, but also saying, okay, guys, let's try it. And I'll be right here with you and helping and trying to figure out how to do this. A number of years ago, my uncle, who's a farmer, he took me to an Angus bull sale, an Angus type of beef cow, um, usually black, sometimes, sometimes red. I have a picture up here. We went to this sale, something like this. There's a ring where there's these bulls, and then you're on the outside, and there's an auctioneer, and 
These bulls are, you know, they're worth thousands of dollars. People are taking them home to their herds so that they can improve their genetics. And I've, have you ever been to an auction where there's an auctioneer? And they're yelling, you know, one, like the fast words, and you can hardly tell what they're saying. I find it so, like, um, it's crazy. It's like, it's, it just, like, captivates me when they're doing this, and it's fast. And this is what was going on. They're selling these bulls. And I look over at one person who's bidding, and there's a dad and his son, maybe 10 years old. And I couldn't believe it, but he had, the father had his 10-year-old son bidding on the bull instead of him. And so what I saw was, you know, as the auctioneer looks back to you to see if you want to raise the bid, I saw this father kind of, you know, gently like leaning down, maybe whispering something in his son's ear, but it was the son every time that would shake his head or lift his hand and bid up and up and up. And, you know, I don't know about you, but we're talking about thousands of dollars here. <laughs> like, you don't want to, you know, make a mistake or go too high or this or that. But yet, when I saw that, I'll never forget the picture. I can still picture them over in this corner doing that. Friends, that's discipling at its finest. Right there. He was, father, dad was showing his son, not just watch me do this thing, but he's like, I'll let you take a whack at it and I'll be right here and help you and tell you maybe when to stop, when to bid again. That's assisting. Now we come to the third step, watch. Watch. You know, there comes a point as we are training someone up. It's, okay, now it's time to stand back a little and say, have at it. I'm going to be here, but you can go off. You know, that's the time when the kid on their bike, they've sort of got it, and so you let them maybe go down the street, but they're still within eyesight, or you let them go around the big parking lot, and maybe once in a while you have to yell, like, gear down, because, you know, so it's easier to get up that hill. But you take a step back. And there are times when, even in discipling and training others up in the faith, we take a step back and say, okay, now you go try. I think of Jesus where he took the 72 and he sent them out and he said, I want you to go do ministry like I have done it, like I've shown you and taught you. And I'm just going to kind of take a step back and then you're going to come back and tell me how it went. We got to take a step back. Sometimes even Paul, he would have taken a step back. He let Timothy and others go off on their own, but he was still there for help. And then we finally come to that fourth stage of Leaving. Now, the key of leaving is you don't leave the worker, you leave the work, okay? You don't leave people high and dry and cut them off and say, I'm never going to see you again, you're good. But you still have to leave. There was a time when Paul left Ephesus and he said, Timothy, it's yours now. Uh, there was a time when Jesus, you may recall, he uh, gave us the Great Commission and then he uh, started to go up into the sky and he said, I'm leaving now but I'm not going to leave you alone. He leaves us with the Holy Spirit. And Paul even occasionally would write letters to these people, to Timothy, encouraging them and giving them instruction. But there comes a point when we have to leave. There was a song we sang earlier, um, that old hymn, what was it called? <laughs> oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And uh, that song was written by a guy named Charles Wesley who wrote like 6,500 songs in his life. And uh, 
about 300 years ago, and maybe you know, but him and his brother, John, I've talked about them, the Wesley brothers. They had a big influence even on the Wesleyan church and the Methodist church. But have you ever asked yourself when you read about like famous Christians, I wonder who discipled them, right? They didn't just, weren't born that way. You know, someone once, there's that joke that said, they'd roll into, you know, a, a small town and they're like, any great men born here? And the person says, no, just babies, right? No one's born great. No one's born a mature disciple of Jesus, not even the, the Wesley brothers. And you know, one of the main influences in their life was their mom. Susanna Wesley was her name. And Susanna, she had nine kids that lived to adulthood, and she homeschooled them all. And she didn't just homeschool them on, you know, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and all that, but she spiritually took a great interest in training them up in the Lord. And so she started, you know, having rhythms, spiritual rhythms throughout the day, like prayer times together, reading the scriptures together, teaching them how to pray. She said that she had her kids, you know, learning to kneel down at family prayer time before they could even talk. And her goal was not just so they're doing all these outward things, but she wanted it to change their hearts. And she didn't just teach them, but she modeled what it meant to be a believer. There's a story that you know, with nine kids in the house, it's hard for a mom to get away somewhere quiet. And so when she wanted to pray to the Lord, she would sit in her chair in the main room and she would take her apron and she would flip it over her head. She was like in a little tent. And that's where she would talk with God every day. And the kids knew if mama has her apron over her head, you do not interrupt her unless it's an emergency. The kids saw it. As the kids got older, she did something that even back then was very unheard of, and it was over the course of a week, she would have one-on-one -on -one time with each of her kids. And this was a time when her kids could talk about whatever was on their heart, whatever they wanted to talk about. And often these talks had spiritual nature. Susanna Wesley really cared about training up her kids in the way of God. So much influence did she have that she's sometimes nicknamed by historians as the mother of Methodism. That's how strong of an influence she had on raising her kids. She trained up her kids, and her kids trained up others, who trained up others, who trained up others. You know, Paul's, Paul needed a method of growing and raising up people that was, um, it multiplied. He didn't have time to sit around and send people off to, you know, the professionals to Bible school. Like, he just didn't have that option. He says in 2 Timothy, and he says this to, to Timothy, he says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Do you, did you, there's four generations in that one verse. Paul, Paul trains up Timothy. Timothy's to train up reliable people, and those reliable people are to train up others. Let's bring it all back today to us right now. What does this mean for us? Well, I have a couple questions to ask as we wrap up today. And it, the first one is, who are you mentoring spiritually? Or we might say, who are you discipling? Who are you having a spiritual influence on? Who are those people that you're, you're coming alongside that are younger in the faith and you are saying, just come spend time with me. Let's, 
let's, we can talk, we can learn, we can try things, we can evaluate. Who are those people that we are investing in on a spiritual level? And the second question is, the inverse is, who is mentoring you? Who is discipling you today? You know, it doesn't matter how far along we get in the faith, we all need those people in our lives that we have given permission to speak into our life and to tell us things we don't want to hear, but we need to hear them, right? And maybe you don't have that person right now, and I want to encourage you to think of someone in your world that you look up to spiritually, and why not just ask them for coffee, for breakfast, and just ask them and take the initiative and say, I want to grow more in the Lord and I see something in you that I want. Who, who is discipling, who is mentoring you today? And finally, the last, the last question is for, for, we could say parents or anyone that has an influence in a child or teen's life. And that can be aunts, uncles, grandparents, family, friends. The question is, we spend a lot of time in, as we raise kids, and I mean, I wasn't a kid that long ago myself. I was a teenager 10 years ago, so I, I can speak from that angle. I can't speak from being a parent yet. Um, we spend a lot of time training up our kids' life skills, but do we, do we spend the same energy, or maybe even more energy, um, teaching them and just training them into what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Do we, do we model it for them? Do we, do we show them how to do it? It's, it's, I've noticed um, in my past from just the people I have met as Christians, people my age, I've noticed that um, when we try to expect the church or our pastor to provide all of the spiritual um, teaching and nourishment for the kids, oftentimes when we try to outs- outsource our discipling to someone else, I find it doesn't, it doesn't have the greatest effect because, frankly, it's just not enough time. I mean, our kids right now have 30 minutes back there once a week. It's not enough time, but as parents, as influencers, maybe aunts or uncles, you get a lot of time. You get a lot of influence. And, you know, kids are the greatest at figuring out and discovering what's important to you and what's not. They're really good at discovering, oh, is, is Jesus something we just do Sunday mornings or do they walk the talk? And they will adapt to whatever culture you set. Do we teach them how to pray? Do they see us praying? Do we teach them how to maybe read the Bible? Do they see us reading the Bible? And of course, I know many of us who are just like, help me. I don't, know, I don't know how to do this or I don't want them watching me because I don't feel like I'm doing a good job myself. I get that. But are you real? Are you real about it? Do they see your heart and the intention that you have? I don't, I don't want to deny the fact that we can't control the future outcomes of our kids or teens, right? We can't control Um, We can't force people to believe. Some people have done all the right things and people still walk away. And it kind of reminds me of sailing a bit. I have a picture up here. I have this little 10-foot sailboat that was my grandmother's and she used to enjoy sailing around the lake. And so now that she's passed away, I inherited it and I enjoy it myself. It's this little boat, has no motor. But something I've learned about sailing is I can't 
I don't have the power to push that boat forward, right? And I can't control the wind. I can't tell it which way I want it to blow today. But I can hoist the sail and hope that that wind catches in it and propels me forward. And I say that because even when it comes to training up, whether it's our kids or whether it's other believers, we can't control the outcome, but we can influence it in positive ways. I'm going to ask Glenn and the team to come on up as we close. We all have influence today. We all have influence on people. You might not even realize it that someone's watching you and they're being influenced by you. They look up to you. And my question is, if, if we're influencing people anyways, why not intentionally influence them in their walk with God? Let's not sit on the sidelines. The Great Commission was for all of us, not just professionals. It was for all of us. And imagine what would happen if if maybe one person you have decided to just take under your wing and teach them what you do know and model it for them and assist them and help them grow. Imagine if years later you discover that that one person who you, you mentored is now mentoring someone else. We're all here because someone has spoken and taught us and influenced us for the gospel, for Jesus, to know him more. Imagine what would happen if we did that to someone else, no matter where we are at this point in our journey of faith. Let's not, let's not sit on the sidelines on this one. Let's get, let's get in the game. Does that sound good? Let's pray together. Father, oh, I thank you that you brought people into our lives. Maybe even years ago, maybe not so long ago, you brought people into our lives to tell us and train us and to show us, to guide us, to help us process and wrestle through what it means to follow you. Thank you for doing that in our life. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people that you sent into our life, into our story, into our journey. And I just pray, Lord, that you would encourage your people, encourage me to, even when we don't have it all together, to take that step of faith and say, hey, I don't maybe have it all down the way I'd like, but I can, I can share what God has been doing in my life. I can walk alongside someone. Oh, Lord, give us that sense of urgency today that maybe there's someone that we know, someone that we um, come across and have a relationship with that is just, it, they need someone. They need someone for encouragement. They need someone to show them the ways of life. And we do that very humbly today, realizing that we, it's not in our strength or wisdom or power or we're not all that, but we thank you that you are. And so God, we just, we want to offer ourselves to you our talents, whatever we have, we just want to offer ourselves to you to use it to impact and affect whoever you, whoever you would like to experience more of your grace, maybe even through us. So we thank you. Amen.